Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Before Ian Warwick founded DeepBridge a decade ago, he had an extensive career in the US, laterally as a technology executive. We discuss what he achieves in the US, what the challenges were, and how that influences his philosophy for supporting companies now. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget that you can subscribe on all the podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for further topics or just want to give us feedback, then you can email us at inquiries at hardmanco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today's guest and podcast is Ian Warwick, who is Managing Partner at DeepBridge. Welcome to the podcast, Ian. Thank you, Brian. Good to be here. As usual, we'd like to start by finding a bit more about you. So can you briefly tell us how you became an EIS fund manager? <laughs> okay. So uh, without going back too far, so uh, a very career across many different industries and uh, finally brought me to running and listing my own company on NASDAQ and then working with small cap fund managers in the States. Uh, I think we're probably going to talk about the company I was parachuted into, so I'll come back to that later. Essentially, I spent probably best part of seven years commuting backwards and forwards to New York uh, every Monday morning, every Friday night. And uh, once I completed the the final role I held, uh, I decided that uh, it was time to spend more time in the UK, in particular with my family, who didn't really know me anymore. And uh, the, the logic behind how I came to EIS was that... Uh, we, we set up, or I set up DeepBridge just over 10 years ago now. Uh, and it was really about using that skill set that I'd developed over a number of years uh, in different and diverse industries in terms of starting companies, taking them through to listings, working with organizations, fund managers, and, and raising funds, and kind of doing everything you would do as an entrepreneur in a business. And taking that skill set, join the dots together with some other key individuals, namely at that time, Professor Chris Wood, who was a, an ex-surgeon who became a biotech entrepreneur. Uh, and, and it was to leverage in that skill set into a variety of companies instead of just working within one organization. So that that's how DeepBridge came about initially. Um, to be completely honest, I, I'd never heard of EIS. I'd, I'd spent the best part of 20 years in the States, Houston, five years in Houston as well. So EIS was not something that was on my radar. The, the, the logic behind uh, DeepBridge was to put a company together that would be uh, hands-on helping companies that lack the physical and financial resources to be able to build a business. And and uh, I'm going to stop in case you want to interject at all. No, no, that's fine. That, that's, that's quite interesting to hear. Um, we're going to return to this, I, th- I, th- I think, later on. But for the moment, we, I want to probe into perhaps what, what's an outsider seems the more most interesting part of your career prior to DeepBridge, which is Aftersoft yeah. um, and what you did there. So can we start by asking what Aftersoft is or was and how do you get involved? So Aftersoft was actually a spin-out from a, an, an earlier company and that company was called Auto Data Network Inc., which was a, a diverse group of some 26 companies, all related or loosely related to um, technology that that worked in the automotive industry, whether it was uh, enterprise resource planning software or, or things of that ilk. Um, I was parachuted in. I, I was collared in somebody's office in New York, New York one day, and they asked me would I be willing to go into Auto Data Network and uh, take it to another level. 
uh, to which I said I'd be very happy to do that. And uh, perhaps I should have done more due diligence before I uttered those words. Um, but uh, I, I did actually take the role of chief executive of Autodata Network. Uh, and it probably took me, I don't know, two or three months to figure out that all was not what it, it appeared to be. It was a bit of a mess, to say the least. So what was wrong with the company? Uh, well, they'd, they'd raised an awful lot of money, but it hadn't been well spent. I think the best way to describe that is uh, there, were, there were 26 companies in group. Some of the deals for the acquisitions of those companies had not been consummated properly or they had substantial financial tails on them uh, and everybody was looking for their pound of flesh. Um, there was no real integration between the 26 companies. There was no coordination. So a, a roll-up had been done, but there was no logic to the roll-up. Okay. So basically, you had like 26 different companies sitting there under one umbrella. Was that that sort of thing? Yeah, and I, and I would say that 25 of those 26 companies were in financial trouble. Oh, dear. Um, so it, it was a bit of a mess. So what I set about doing, of course, when, when you take these jobs on, the longer you stay, the more you become associated with the issues. So uh, you've got two choices. You either run away quickly or you roll your sleeves up and figure out how you're going to solve the problem. I obviously chose the latter. Um, I spent some considerable time uh, thinning out some of those companies uh, and looking for the value. Um, fortuitously for me, there was a company, actually a British company over in Tankersley in Yorkshire, uh, which proved to be the saving grace of the whole organization. That company was called MAM Technology and was a fairly forward-thinking software technology company for enterprise resource planning. I don't know if you remember in the old days and you'd go in to buy car parts, and the guy would be sitting there with a massive library of books behind him, and he'd pull a book out to try and find the car part that was relative to your car. They digitized all that process, so, so they were pretty well ahead of the game. So this was back in the mid-2000s, I think. So this would be, oh, off the top of my head, let me think, so 2000, gosh, I can't believe how many years have gone by, but probably, <laughs> yeah, probably 2000. 2000 and maybe 2004, two, about 2004. So yeah, it, it was a bit of a nightmare. They, 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 so the only profitable division that I could find was the company in Yorkshire. Uh, there was a company over in, uh, they had offices in Allentown, Pennsylvania and uh, Dana Point, California, which in the dot-com days took in about $120 million and, and that had all gone. Shocking really, but that, that was what was going on at the time. Uh, and they had some pretty useful pieces of technology as well. So uh, cut a long story short, I managed to thin that business out to where I was left with both the UK company and the one US company. When you say thin out, what, what, what do you mean? Do you, do you laid people off or, or if made it more efficient or what? We, we just handed companies back to the management or, right. or didn't completely consummate the deals as they were intended to be consummated at the beginning. Um, so I, I think there were some casualties. I don't think we need to go into details with them, but there, there were some things that uh, simply didn't make it. Uh, for some bizarre reason, they owned a group of car dealerships, which I never quite figured out, and in the end chose not to bother to try and figure out. So they were just handed back. But it left me with a very clearly defined enterprise resource planning business. Now, bear in mind at the time that Auto Data Network was a, a listed company on the bulletin board in the States. Uh, and we decided that the, the best policy was to uh, change the status of that. So we we look to spin out the companies of value. 
So I think at the time we filed something called the 15C211, where you have to work hand in glove with the SEC. Now, normally when you do a spin out, you spin something out because you have two valuable enterprises and you spin out one from the other. So you end up with two valuable enterprises. In this case, uh, it made it very complicated because in what we were in effect doing was spinning out the value and leaving behind what we didn't want. Uh, so it was 11 months of negotiating with the SEC on how we did that. Uh, and eventually we got it done. I think we got that done at 2005 uh, when we completed the reverse merger and span out to Aftersoft Group. And presumably there's issues there. If you're in some sense publicly listed, you're doing this in full public glare of Correct. other investors, to some extent yeah. media. How do those influence what you're doing? Because obviously there's some really tough decisions to be made in here and you'd probably want sort of time and the ability to deal with that without any sort of external examination in the short term. Well, I think the key thing, you're absolutely right, that everything we did was fully transparent. Uh, um, you know, everything we wanted to do, we had to file with the SEC to say this was our intentions, this is what we're looking to do. So everything was public. And obviously, we had a lot of shareholders who, whose value had substantially uh, decreased prior to my arrival, who were, who were uh, concerned that they were going to lose everything. But the, the, the arrangement we made and the deal we did with the SEC was that we would spin out the things of value, but we would, we would take all the shareholders with us pari pursu. So basically, every single shareholder in ADN went forward as a shareholder in, in Aftersoft Group, and they were, they were not left behind to wither. They, they were carried forward into the new vehicle. Right. Presumably, they were still left with some sort of residual holding the old things. Were yeah, they? They, 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 had a, they still had their shareholding in, in the old co, but uh, it, it was pretty worthless once we span out the value. Okay. Um, so, you know, everybody bought into the uh, what, what we were trying to achieve and what we did. And we ended up with uh, uh, a clean NASDAQ listed or bulletin board listed uh, after soft group with two companies in it, one being MAM Software in the UK and the other one being the US um, enterprise based in California and Allentown. Uh, and then we set about moving that company back to profitability. And uh, the, the first job to do, which was obviously very difficult because everybody enjoys going to California, was that there was no logic to having an office in California and an office in Allentown. And in fact, Allentown was the, the primary site where the vast majority of the work was undertaken. So we, we closed the California office and consolidated everything back into Allentown. Mm -hmm. and, and did the people in California, did, did some of them move to Yorkshire or did you just let, they were just made redundant? They all chose to leave, which is, was absolutely no surprise to me and, and, and reinforced that it was the right decision to make. So we, we then relied more heavily upon the management in the UK at that point. Uh, and the team in Yorkshire was a fantastic team. So we, we were fairly confident that, that they, they could uh, leverage in their skill sets to help us build a business. Uh, yeah, so we uh, we restructured it. Uh, we, we then realized that the company needed new financing and we went out and I think in uh, probably around about January 2008, we, we got a, a six million of new funds $6 million of new funds into the company. So that new equity or? It was, it was a debt piece. Yeah. It was a debt piece. Um, as you know, in the States, there's all, all sorts of different financial instruments. So I think it was five, five million debt 
and uh, a million revolver. And a revolver is a bit like an overdraft. You can draw on it as and when you need it. Uh, the terms were pretty uh, hard, but, you know, beggars couldn't be choosers. And, you know, we're talking 2008 here, if you remember, the uh, mm-hmm. the sky had just fallen in. Yes. And, and if you're struggling with profitability as well, they're probably going to look at that not generously, shall we say. I, th- I think sometimes it helps to be uh, single-minded and bloody-minded when you're in these scenarios. And, and uh, don't don't listen to people who tell you you need to just walk away. You just, sometimes you just, you, you know, it's, it, I, I prefer to roll my sleeves up and figure out what the solution is. But nonetheless, we, we uh, the, the company's stock at that time was uh, probably about 30 cents. We, we did a rights issue and, and, and got some more funds in at 60 cents, which, which obviously we're starting to move back up the, 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 the value scale. Uh, and we moved the company to profitability over a period of time. One of the key so, elements... Yeah, so sorry, how did you move that to profitability? I mean, that's... Just by cutting costs and, and changing things. And, and I know one of the questions you had was, you know, what, what, was there anything you would have done differently? Uh, I think one one thing you learn going that through through that process is it's very easy to look at a scenario when, when you're in a, uh, in, in a hole uh, and make some cuts that seem right, but, but try not to cut too much. I think... Having gone through that experience, I think it's quite obvious that when you find yourself with a company in that scenario, that it's important that you cut deep, cut fast, and then rebuild. Because inevitably, what happens is you, you you make some cuts, and then you 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 know trundle along for a few months, and then you've got to make some more cuts anyway. So you so the the key thing was actually uh, we we had two software stacks. So the Americans had developed a software stack, and the UK had developed a software stack. Uh, the UK's was considerably more robust in that it was always built for multi-user, where the American one was built for single user and then tried to bolt on the multi-user on top. So the the goal and and uh, and the work we undertook was to actually start to leverage in the, the UK developed technology. Also in the States, they, they didn't have an electronic catalog in the States. So, so there was the move towards producing an electronic i know it sounds hard to believe that the states were way behind the uk but but it is a fact and something i find quite often really i, I think the, my last interviewer actually made the same or last interviewee made the same point that in the area he was in he was working ahead of what a lot of people in the states were doing yeah no i think it's it's quite you do have some fabulous innovators over there but sometimes you are faced with uh you know, some antiquated ways of doing things. I mean, a great example was when we leveraged in our UK technology into the US market. So if you went to a, if you went to a, an auto workshop to have a service done, it would typically take them around about 30, 35 minutes in front of a, a green screen to program in your service and then to tell you how much it would cost and give you a thing. Well, the consequences of that were you've got 10 people in the queue. By the time that six people have already left the queue and buggered off, so once we leverage in our technology into that kind of environment, they were, they were doing those in 32 seconds. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the dramatic difference we made to that industry, both in tires and in parts. So it was a dramatic change in, in what happened in the business. And I think, the, you know, the restructure, the, the looking at the technology and leveraging the best pieces of the technology. The key thing for me was uh, bringing through that really high quality experience management from the company in Yorkshire. Uh, and they were proper Yorkshiremen, you know. They they, they were giving nothing away, uh, but they but they formed a great team. And I think I said at the time to the guy who you now is the chief executive of the company, Mike Jamieson, I said, "You you will run this company when I've done my job," uh, uh, and he does. And uh, yeah, ultimately the company uh, 
So I, I was there for five years. Uh, it, it was a tough job. Uh, it, you know, it was a lot of hard work. It went in a lot of travel. But ultimately, once I'd completed what I was assigned to do, it then became incumbent upon the board to let the management then run the business. And I, I wholeheartedly agreed with that. And that, that's when I left the company. I think when I left the company, the stock was at a dollar sixty. Um, and then probably, I don't know how long after, I think probably, I think it was 2010 I left. Uh, and then a number of years later, it sold to Kerridge. Uh, and the share price when it sold was $12.12p. So if you if you took my rights issue at 60 cents and stayed the course and were patient, then you 20 x on your money. Sounds pretty good to me. Uh, I don't know how many people stayed the course for that length of time, but uh, if you did, then you did pretty well. But, you know, uh, you know, I'm a great believer in inherently every problem is in some way an opportunity. You just have to figure out where the opportunity is and, and and sometimes you've got to make tough decisions and hard decisions and ultimately it, it can work out yeah one thing that occurred to me from what you said there was you ended up with a uk company in essence selling into the us and that is something i know a lot of people have struggled with in in all sorts of industries um now maybe it's different because Maybe with, with the existing Euros operation, you already had some infrastructure, but how, yeah. how did you do that and how did you make that effective? It, it is difficult. And I think my advice to anybody trying to break into the US market would be to don't, don't, don't just fly over there and open an office and think you're going to set the world on fire. It doesn't work like that. You, you need boots on the ground there. You need American boots on the ground there. You know, you, you can only go so far with an English accent. Um, eventually, you, you have to have infrastructure there, boots on the ground, and people who comprehensively understand their own marketplace. Just because they speak English doesn't mean that it's going to be the same as what you do here, and it isn't. Um, so we, we have taken a couple of our companies to the States uh, with some success, uh, and, and our advice is always to uh, see if there's an acquisition we can do over there, and, and we can get a foothold in the market and acquire a team at the same time as as going over there so it's so you think that's a better approach than just going over and saying right we need five sales people or whatever and we'll recruit five you know a, a team of 10 people five plus support yeah i'm not suggesting that that doesn't work what i'm what i'm saying is it it, it you bear in mind that in, in take the uk as an example or even the rest of europe you know we're we're, we're a, we have 70 million people in a very compact space <clears throat> In, in the States, first of all, you, you have uh, multiple different layers of laws across state by state. Some of them are, are coordinated, but a lot of them are not. Uh, you have people who are very parochial about the state they live in or the city they live in. You know, and to get from New York to do a deal in, in Los Angeles is three days, you know, and to do a half hour meeting. So it, it's a different, it's, it's a huge country. It's very dynamic. There's a lot of... Uh, a lot of good business to do there, but but it, it it's a massive undertaking to take on the U.S. market. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that 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 that's the reason I asked the question because I I know it's I mean, I, and and it's easy to describe the U.S. as a market, but actually it's not a market, is it? No, it, it's probably you could probably break it down, and we usually include Canada in there as well. So Canada's a market in its own right, East and West, and then you can split the U.S. into East and West Coast. And then probably, you know, the central belt where people tend to steer away from. Uh, and then you've got your Texas and, and the south. Um, 
but they are markedly different both demographically and, and financially there's substantial differences in every single market so you've got to figure out where you're going to get biggest bang for your buck basically yeah we can see the cultural differences i think to some extent in the voting that we're currently oh yeah seeing. yeah so, yeah that's a fascinating watch out so yes so so for the listeners we're recording this before the election result is finally announced but we're still counting um, so having worked successfully, not with just Aftersoft, but with, with, with other companies, you came back to UK and decided to become a fund manager in essence. Why did you become a fund manager? I, 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 don't, think, um, I don't think consciously, Brian, we, I sat there and I, I remember sitting there and thinking, okay, how do I leverage that skill set? And I don't think I consciously sat there and thought, hey, I want to be a fund manager, that'll be easy. It, it was actually the concept was first uh, came about because I was thinking, okay, rather than just trying to be some kind of non-executive director sitting in a company and offering advice where I could, it, it was it was to have some kind of fund structure behind it because my driver was that I believe that most companies in that earlier stage of life simply lacked the physical and financial resources to be able to realize their potential. And I call it the ceiling effect. In that they get to a certain level and they're banging their head against the ceiling and, and neither have the willpower or the, or the financial resources or, or people to enable them to push on from that point. So the, the initial concept was that we would put the company together and look at how we could start helping companies. And then probably within a few months, we thought, right, okay, we, we probably need some kind of fund structure to go with this. Uh, and, and we were both naive and inexperienced although i'd worked with a lot of fund managers in the states i was always the guy knocking on the door with my hand out so it was somewhat different so we uh, we partnered up with another company and collectively we we built a a ccaf structure in luxembourg uh, it took us about 11 months to do that and an awful lot of money um this this was still 2010 when the sky was still falling in and things were very difficult we, we spent an awful lot of time knocking on doors, Virgin Fund, you name a city in Europe that's, that's got fund managers in it and funds of funds. We, we went there and spoke to everybody. We, we spoke to the European Investment Fund uh, and we, we were well received everywhere we want. Everybody loved the team. They loved what we'd already achieved. But unfortunately, it wasn't a good time to be a Virgin Fund trying to raise funds in 2010. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and Coincidentally, just at that moment, and going back to what you originally asked about, how did we get into EIS? Um, uh, one, one of my uh, one of my friends at the time was a senior guy at Coots Bank, and and uh, he 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 took me to a dinner one night where I met about ten or twelve of his investors, his uh, his clients, and uh, he said, right, just tell all the guys and, and the girls what what you do. And I told them what we were doing and what the strategy was and the plan and the outcome-driven methodology and the areas we worked in. And they all said, we love what you're doing, Ian, but why wouldn't you use EIS? And I think my, my reaction, I didn't react in front of them, but I, I remember getting back in the car and going, what the hell is EIS? <laughs> uh, you know, that might seem a little naive, but... Uh, you know, I'd, I'd never even considered, uh, we hadn't looked at it that deep. I don't think it is naive, even now... Um, some people describe it as kind of the best kept secret and it's very easy for us in the industry to sort of say, oh yes, EIS, we all know. But it's pretty clear that outside the industry and perhaps a small number of investors or relatively small number of investors, yeah. people don't know what it is. No, I agree. Um, 
So we we uh, we immediately set about learning everything we could about EIS, uh, and it very quickly became apparent that the SICAF in Luxembourg for the area we were investing and the risks we were taking, then we we should be using EIS. And I, I distinctly remember getting in my car very early one morning. I'm driving up to my default mountain in the Lake District, which is a Coniston old man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was up there about half six in the morning sitting there and just saying, OK, we, we need to flip this model. Get, we're not doing the Luxembourg thing anymore. We are, we're going to uh, we're going we're gonna to go to go into EIS. Now, we we changed our model to EIS in April. So just after the end of the uh, <laughs> the tax year, <laughs> which timing was impeccable as usual. Um, and I think at the time there were there was a. There was something going on with uh, HMRC and others with regards to whether EIS would be an unregulated collective investment scheme. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, so uh, and there was a lot of uh, reluctance for people to uh, put their clients into EIS until it was clearly defined whether it was or whether it wasn't. So that kind of stymied the, the the efforts to start with. And yeah, that that's really how we ended up being an EIS manager. And you know what? I do like to tell that story, Brian, because I think it's important for people to understand that we didn't think, oh, we'll do EIS because that'll be easy. E- EIS almost came to us and, and knocked on our door and said, "Why the hell are you not using me?" So we we were gonna we were gonna do what we were gonna do anyway. So EIS just became a an added tool for the investor as opposed to what we do yeah yeah I, th- I think that's an important distinction and the industry has got a lot better but i think if we go back five years or eight years i think there's a lot of people who were kind of well we're in this to make money and eis is the way that we're going to do it yeah whereas i think the industry is increasingly head in the direction that you started from perhaps a little earlier than some where now people are, well, we were here, we want to help companies, and EIS is the, the ideal channel to do that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think as well, when, when we did look at EIS, bear in mind that I've worked under SEC rules for a long time. Um, so when we started looking at EIS and talking to people who'd invested money but had no idea where the money was invested, you know, my, my eyebrows were raised as to the lack of transparency. And uh, so we, we, we determined we would take all those rules and regulations that we sat under in the US under the SEC uh, and for the most part drop them on top of what we did here at mm-hmm. Deanbridge. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a very good thing to be doing. I mean, and and it's still something the industry, I think, to some extent is wrestling with. And I mean, there's a thing sometimes between passive money, which is kind of the investors who, well, this is an investment and in some sense I don't care, and you, but a lot of investors really do actually want to know what's going on underneath the bonnet and what they're invested into. And increasingly with the ESG movement, I guess that's becoming more pertinent as well. Yep. Yeah. So, in terms of you, your fund manager now, how do the experiences that you had translate into what you do as a fund manager? So, I, th- I think what's important to say is that, that, that where we invest, if we set SES, SEIS on one side for a minute, in, in EIS where we invest, we we uh, and I'm going to use an Americanism because I like I like the analogy is uh, we invest in the valley of death, <laughs> and 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 I like to invest in the valley of death because I can find companies that have reached certain milestones, um, but lack that physical and financial capability to push forward. And they're in the valley of death because they may have raised money from themselves, they've remortgaged their house, friend of, friends and family in different areas, maybe some angel investors, 
but they're, they're not yet ready to go and raise that more substantial money from you know, an institutional investor or a VCT or, or somebody of that ilk. Uh, but what it does mean for me, and more importantly, what it means for my investors is that, that we, can, uh, we can still command a decent piece of the company for our investment because they're at a stage where risk is mitigated to a certain degree by virtue of the fact that they're at a certain level. But because they can't raise funds unless they come to me, then I can still command a decent piece of the company. But uh, yeah, I, I think the other and the other element that's important as well is I, I fundamentally believe that uh, if you're just going to put the money in at this stage, you're probably going to lose your money. You, you have to bring you have to bring smart money. You have to be, you know, when when we look at an investee company, the first question we ask ourselves is what can we contribute here? You know, do we have a skill set in house? What what knowledge do we have? Do they need to go through the, you know, the FDA process in the States, which we've done? Do they need to attract, uh, do they need to expand globally into global markets? And, and what, what expertise do we have in this, in this industry? So it was really all about leveraging in our experience, hand in glove with the management, um, uh, but, but still mitigating the risk by using EIS, but also mitigating the risk by investing in things where we felt the company was either ready to go to market or was already at market, but simply lacked that ability to grow. Mm -hmm. And to what extent do you as a fund manager get involved in that, in that it would be very easy in one sense, you, you've got a lot of experience running companies. It's very easy for you to go in and effectively run the company um, in one sense. But you obviously can't do that and don't yeah, want no, to do I, that. I, I absolutely don't want to do that. And, and you know, we, you know, sometimes we, 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 have, we have no intention of running these companies, nor do we have an intention of being a majority shareholder in these companies. That's not what we do and it's not what we want to do. What, what we want the company to do is, we, I think, you know, experience is a great thing. And, and uh, I remember having a conversation with a lady who wrote a, a book on, how the brain works and how the brain relates to things like your stomach and different things. And uh, I said to her, so what, what is your opinion of a, of a gut feeling? She said, well, a, a gut feeling is actually your brain recognizing an experience and sets your guts off to warn you that you should recognize this experience. And I absolutely wholeheartedly believe in that. So what we pride ourselves on is, is seeing things before they happen or being able to recognize something before it becomes a major problem. So the reason we're hands-on with these guys is we want them to be free and, and realize their vision and to grow their business because at the end of the day, it, they're the driver behind the business, not me. But we want to be there so we can say, you know what, guys, hang on a minute. You know, Do we really want to do this deal because the net effect of doing this deal will be this? Or if you sign this document, this is what's going to happen. I know we've got one company at the moment that uh, uh, they remain nameless, but they wanted to do a deal and we felt that the deal would be toxic again an americanism and what i meant that by that was whilst the deal today may look great uh, and you'll get exactly what you want if you have to circle back around again in 12 months time and raise some more money you're never going to raise money with that deal being in place so so you know our advice was don't do the deal um so it, it's the experience that we leverage in in, in multiple scenarios uh, and it, and it's growth experience. So avoiding the pitfalls and making sure you grow correctly. Mm -hmm. And presumably there's a balance in there in the sense that while you, there's a, 
obviously a big degree of pattern recognition for you and you see, you've seen a lot of things before. At the same time, every company is a little bit different and the management of that company is the biggest expert in that company and their market uh, and you're not. So presumably at some point they do have to turn around and say, well, hang on, Ian, I don't think that's quite right for us. Right, Brian, that's fine. I, I absolutely buy into that. And, and really all word we are is checks and balances. So, you know, if... if you know, we, we buy in significantly to the management of a company. If, if we didn't, then we'd, we'd be wasting our time, really. So the, the management, and, and I know there's probably a question later, but it's important to mention it. No, the management are the most important element of what we do. You know, you, you can have a pretty average product with a fantastic management team and you'll make money. You can have a fabulous product with a rubbish management team and you'll lose your money. It's just as simple as that. So it's important that we have a very good relationship with the management. You know, we have difficult times that we challenge them. They might not like the challenge, but we will justify the challenge. But equally, we want them to justify why they're making a decision. Um, and uh, sometimes it's, it's difficult. I, I think the industry is difficult because you, you see lots of companies raising hundreds of millions of pounds, pumping it all into client acquisition, uh, not worrying about EBITDA or making money. It's just about, let's drive this company, go on, we'll get 10 million users and we'll be valued at a billion. We don't buy into that. <laughs> What, what we're really interested in is good, solid growth with, with, with profitability. Do you think the UK and the US markets differ, differ a little bit in that respect? Because I think, and maybe it's the headlines, but what I see out of Silicon Valley is a lot of what you just spoke about. And there's a little bit in the UK, but I don't see anything like as much of it in the bits I look at. I think two things. One is the UK tends to be more considered about what, what they do. But, but bear in mind that when in the UK, particularly at the level we invest at, we, we, we don't have the funds to do what a, a Silicon Valley investment fund can do, who's sitting on $12 billion of assets, that they can afford to put $100 million into something and it not work out. I can't, nor do I want to have to pick up the phone to a, a retail investor and say, I know you risk 10 grand, but you've lost it. So... So these these big deals you see is everybody in the States, all these big guys with billions under management, everything's relative. It's like putting 10 quid on a horse to win. You know, if, if you've only got 50 quid in your pocket, that's a lot of money. If you've got 5,000 pounds in your pocket and you put a grand on for a horse to win, it's all relative. So so really, there's there's no fundamental difference between what they do and what we do. They just write bigger tickets and take bigger risk, but it's proportionate to what they have. Yeah. The, the question that springs to mind is, People talk a lot about unicorns. Clearly, there's been hundreds in Silicon Valley, and there's been a much smaller number in the UK. And some of that is just because people in America are more willing to fund that. But do you think there's a path in the UK for companies to become uniform, unicorns? Yeah, I, I think uh, there absolutely is. I mean, we, we, we jokingly say here that we thought unicorns were extinct. But, uh, <laughs> There's definitely a path, you know, I don't think one should set out with the goal of trying to be a unicorn, but if if you set out with a particular criteria at the outset, uh, and we have a very simple but tough criteria, uh, and that criteria is there specifically to, to drive ultimately a, a larger valuation than you would get by not having that criteria. So, you know, we look we look for global scalability, multiple vertical markets, disruptive. So if all those pieces come together, and they don't always, if they all come together, then there's no reason why a UK company can't be a unicorn. You know, we, we've had one unicorn so far, Brian. You know, I'm not going to shout from the rooftops about it because by the time it got to being a unicorn, we only owned a little piece of it. But nonetheless, it was a spin out from 
the Palo Alto Research Center that we brought to the UK, funded it um, through to a point where we, we recognized, uh, and this is about understanding the fundamentals of some businesses, that they they couldn't win the really big accounts that they wanted to win because the balance sheet wasn't strong enough. And, you know, 10 people in the UK and 26 people sitting in California in rented offices didn't give you enough credibility to win State Farm or Prudential. So the, the decision was made to allow that company to merge with another US company. Uh, and we took a bit of a hit to do that deal, but we felt it was the right thing to do. Uh, and ultimately, that company was then bought for $1.6 billion in cash by Roper Technologies. Now, we, we did between one and a half and six times return on investment, depending on where you invested and what the exchange rate was at the time, which I'm pretty happy with. But, but you're absolutely right that the ability of somebody to walk in and write a ticket for $1.6 in cash is, is the preserve of very few places, and, and America being one of them. Yeah, it, it does create a, a different dynamic. I'm not going to say whether better or worse, but I think, I think there's very much a different dynamic here from Silicon Valley, which is, is interesting. So you yourself have had some success. You've had a couple of exits, in essence. Yeah. How do you think your relationship with money has changed over time? Because the typical British thing is you have success, hooray, you buy the yacht, you go and sit on the beach, uh, and uh, you haven't done that. Personally, no. No, yes. I haven't done that. No, uh, I, I'd like to tell you I'm driven by money, but I'm not. I like the thing money gives me, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not driven by that. I actually thoroughly enjoy what I do. I mean, I'm not getting any younger. Um, I had the pleasure of taking the sleeper up to Scotland the other night and going past Faslane Submarine Base looking out of the window at seven in the morning and, and then I suddenly realized that was 40 years ago, which is a little bit, little bit scary. But You're no, a former I'm, Navy man. I'm an ex-Navy man, yeah, for my sins. Um, I, I enjoy what I do. I enjoy the buzz of what I do. You know, we, we built a team around us here. It's a very collegiate approach here at Deepbridge. Uh, we all enjoy, it's, it's not always a bed of roses. You know, we, we have some difficult times. At, at, you know, 100 not investing companies, you, you're going to be dealing with a lot of issues, and we are. Uh, but you know what? It, it's we, I, I can't tell you who it is, but we we potentially got a very big investment coming into one of our companies that we turned around uh, from a major hedge fund. Which uh, you know that uh, it's very exciting. I know I used to get exciting when when I was in the print industry, and I'd I'd won a deal to print you know 20 million Escom computer catalogs, and then when you stand there and you watch them coming off the end of the press, and you know that a ship brought the paper from Canada and. 36 articulated lorries brought the papers of the mill and then it's there being printed that gets me excited mm. so we we get excited by what we do you know i think as well people get caught up in uh you know there's there's a lot since the government changed the rules to where it's all about uh, you know patient capital and uh, investing in companies about growth and all the rest of it all of a sudden everybody kept saying our target return is 10 times well fantastic you know but realistically that doesn't happen a lot. And and if you're an investor who's put in 10 grand or 100 grand or whatever it is, and they get back 200 grand, they'd be absolutely delighted. And, and one has to keep your mind close to that, that you don't always have to blow the doors off. So it's about sensible investing in companies that will get you a decent return. Are you going to have the outliers that will become a unicorn? Yes, I hope so. But But are we counting on them? Mm -hmm. No, we're not. Yeah. I think when you're talking about, am I going to get a unicorn in my portfolio? Unless you have a huge portfolio, it's more about luck than... Yeah, what, than what you never hear about, Brian, is when, when one of these Silicon Valley investment funds 
makes a fortune on Google or whatever it is. They, they don't tell you the other 1.4 billion they've, they've wiped out on everything else. They've done take SoftBank, for instance. You know, I was just thinking of SoftBank that you spoke about that, where they managed to uh, waste a fair amount of their money. Uh, though I saw WeWork's now forecasting a profit next year. So Halloween, the dead have risen, I think. So that, again, I, I like to use the analogies about horse racing as I enjoy. I'm not a gambler, but I enjoy my horse racing. And I've always enjoyed horse racing because my thing is when I was younger, I loved to play chess. And to me, horse racing is like chess in that you have so many different pieces that you have to extrapolate little, little bits of information from to try and determine a winner. But if you're a professional horse race gambler, you might back one horse every six weeks. If, if, if you're a gambler with no control of yourself or the money doesn't matter, you're probably picking five horses a day and you're losing money. Everything's relative. The, the bigger the funds, the more money they have, the, the more gamble they take. So we'll we'll move now into our standard questions, although I think you okay. maybe preempted one or two of okay. them, <laughs> which is absolutely fine. So what was the most recent investment that you made and why did you make it? Most recent. Uh, so we, we, we obviously, we, we follow our own money. So we, we haven't made any new investments for quite a while now, just because of what's going on with COVID-19 and all the rest of it. So we've, uh, we, we have a number ready to go, but we've not made them. I think one I want to highlight is a, a company called Hurricane. Uh, it's always a funny story in that we, 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 as you're probably aware, we have an office in Australia now, and we, we, we find interesting technology companies in Australia and bring them to the UK. So we, we, we met Hurricane in Australia, naturally assuming it was an Australian company. Uh, and this is a company that's developed what's called a landed engine. Uh, so it, it's a piece of uh, technology and software that uh, parcel companies can use globally or anybody who's shipping a product. And it will tell you, uh, so if, if you're buying wine from California, at the moment you buy your wine in California, it ships to the UK. Uh, you only get to find out what it's really going to cost you when HMRC contacts you from Coventry Airport. I'm speaking out of experience here <laughs> and basically says can you pay us 1300 pounds please or otherwise we won't release your wine so with this landed engine you know that before it happens so so uh, if you bear in mind uh, particularly with what's going on with covid the the, the the level of international package movement is quite staggering really nobody's ever developed a platform of this nature i know that amazon have something but it's it's not on the same league as what these guys have got it also does things like it, it, it will do, uh, you know, person's checks. So it, it's ensuring that Jim Smith up in Bradford, who's made an electronic component part, is not shipping it to Mohammed whatever in Lebanon, who's going to use it in a bomb. But it, but it, it cross-references against different addresses, close-by addresses, similar names. It will stop. Uh, I think it was DHL that shipped a package to somebody who was in the North Korean embassy in New York. Well. That's a big no-no, $6 million fine, bang. So that they, it was a very interesting concept. So they, they came to the UK, or we invited them to our office in the UK, and the, and the, cat, the chap came down and sat with us, and we, we said, how was the flight? He went, oh, no, I live in Chester. <laughs> so we, we which like, is local for you. <laughs> which is, he lived about a mile from the office, which was quite funny, actually. But uh, So what, what particularly we liked about that team, so if you buy into the fact that there's a need for the technology, if you buy into the having tried has, importing stuff on odd occasions, I know there's a need for the technology. And, and, and it was something like uh, 65% of uh, online sales fall away 
at the point where you've got things in your inbox ready to buy. I mean, that's staggering. You know, that's huge. So it can massively reduce that. So the key thing was that we eventually the whole team came to Chester uh, and we thought the team was exceptional. They were dyed in the wool packaging shipping guys. They knew the industry back to front. This wasn't just a guess that it might work. They'd seen the need for this solution for 20 years. So we 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 bought we we understood the concept, we understood the need for the product, we knew it was disruptive in nature, we knew it could potentially be in multiple verticals, and the management team was exceptional. So so we, we it went through all our processes, it was signed off internally, it was signed off by the independent investment committee. And uh, we, we began investing in that and uh, don't want to say too much on this because I don't want to be seen to be trying to induce somebody to invest in it. But, you know, they're doing extremely well. And, you know, the latest call with those guys was around, you know, we, we, we're going to rapidly reach a point where we don't need any more funding. And uh, what, what we also liked, which is, is, is prevalent in a number of our companies, is we like that recurring revenue model, you know, the per click, per user, per click. The recurring revenue model uh, and software that is software as a service as opposed to a license fee and uh, you know th this company will grow exponentially the, m the more of these international packaging companies they have online packaging national postal services again not going to name names but we have a high number of the reason they were in the us was to win Auspost, which is their equivalent to royal mail which they've now won uh, and and to tell you, we've made substantial inroads into just about all the global postal services would be an understatement. Now, it doesn't happen overnight because they have to integrate it into their systems. And then but once the click starts going and every time somebody uses it and clicks or checks, checks uh, for a named person they can ship to, which is all automated, doesn't require a person to sit there and go, please check Bill Smith in Bradford. It's all automated. And every time they do that, we get a piece of the action. Uh, it, it's got the potential to have a very substantial annual recurring revenue and therefore the valuation can be very interesting so if you said talked about unicorns uh, do, do we in the backs of our minds do we look at that and go that could be a unicorn maybe does does it matter at this stage no mm -hmm. uh, but you know it it's a very exciting business and and we do get excited i know when i last went to australia and James, who works for us in, in Brisbane, he, he sat me in a room and I think I, I saw 11 companies that day, which is a lot. Uh, and I kid you not, it was like being a kid in a sweetie shop. <laughs> uh, you, you eventually have to filter through that yeah. and, and get to where you want to be. But um, yeah, it, it's good fun. Good. good. So uh, tell us about a time you failed and what did you learn from it? So I guess one of my biggest failures was a company I had uh, prior to going to the States. So it's a little while ago now. Uh, the reason it failed, um, basically, uh, a lack of cash flow management. Mm -hmm. uh, and more importantly, an over-reliance upon a very small number of customers. Uh, and one of those companies went bust. Uh, which was a big computer company that we did an awful lot of uh, print work for, as it was at the time. And they took us for about a quarter of a million pounds in one hit. Um, yeah, we, we couldn't survive that. Um, so the, the lessons learned from that was to uh, cash flow is king. Uh, you know, money in the bank. You know, when COVID hit, the first thing we did at Deep Ridge and the first thing we did with all our invested companies was cut your costs. 
we don't know where this is going, cut costs. You know, dig deep, cut costs, reduce salaries, reduce, don't take director's drawings, do ever what you need to do to get your cash burned down to extend your survival runway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a big lesson I learned that. Uh, but the other thing I learned as well was, uh, I think I mentioned it before about when you've got problems is, you know, don't give up. Take a way around it. There is always a solution. And I, I, I learned that kind of from the print industry because the print industry wasn't about, will you have a problem? When you're printing massive print jobs, every job had a problem, every job. So you learned how to handle the problems. And, and inherently, every problem was an opportunity because if you could show people how you handle the problem, that was almost as important as, as, as a no problem outcome. Yeah, the, the venture capital industry is probably a bit the same in that there's always problems uh, or challenges, if you want to phrase that optimistically. Uh, well, I was reading something this morning that Matthew McConaughey said. And he said, just remember that <clears throat> all the people who are bad-mouthing me know I was once very nice to. <laughs> uh, and I guess what I mean by that is human nature is to forget how much you've done for somebody once they become successful or they think they're successful. And that's when you start getting challenging issues with management when they forget how they got to where they are. So uh, that's all part of the fun, really. Yes, people who leave their own press is, is always dangerous. So the industry that we work in is far from perfect. How would you like to change the EIS industry? Well, first and foremost, I echo what you said, and I think EIS is a phenomenal product. It's the envy of everybody I speak to anywhere on the planet. You know, my Australian friends would love it. They they have something in Australia. It's not a patch on EIS. I think it's an exceptional product, and, and bravo for multiple different denominations of government over many years continuing to support it. I think it's a, a brilliant opportunity for innovation in the UK to develop. So first and foremost, there's not a huge amount of uh, change. I think we we did lobby pretty hard for the change to uh, knowledge intensive uh, and to move away from asset backed. Uh, it, I found it very frustrating when we started and we, we were all about tech uh, uh, and Probably 65% of the money was going into renewables. Um, that, I found that very frustrating. Having said that, we bit the bullet and did renewables because we, we needed to pay the bills. So you can't criticize too much. So, you know, less brokers and more activists would, would be good. Uh, but you, you're absolutely right. You can see a, a change over the last 10 years to whether there are less people with two blokes in an office just focused on fees to where you, you have some really highly credible, substantial and, you know, very good teams out there, you know, like the Puma guys and, you know, Octopus, they like to get knocked, but I think they've been fundamental in, uh, you know, spreading the word about EIS uh, and, and people like us can live off the back of the fact that somebody's taken the time to educate people on EIS. So, you know, the, there's some really good companies out there. Yeah, I, I, I don't see a lot of issues with, with EIS, to be honest with you. Uh, I think it's a great product, maybe a little bit... Uh, more flexibility on when you, you're trying to rekindle a business after it's either gone bust or or is a turnaround that's been around for more than the number of years you're allowed. Uh, SEIS is a different kettle of fish. Uh, I think 150 grand is, is woeful. I'd agree with uh, that. It doesn't allow you to achieve or do anything. Uh, and really, you know, the tax relief is phenomenal. Uh, and I think the problem there is a lot of people go, oh, 50% tax relief, great, I'll bang my money in. But, you know, unless you have a real strong portfolio approach, the chances are you're going to lose your money anyway. So mm-hmm. what's the point? Yeah. Uh, so SEIS, if I had my way, it'd be half a million. Yeah. 
That sounds, if I could, yeah. If I could lobby for anything, that would be it. Yeah, that that 150k has been in place for 10 years now, so it's it seems to me like it's well overdue for a change. I, I think the issue is more to do with state aid rules. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think I don't think the government is naive to the fact that it, it's uh, woeful. I think it's state aid is the issue, yeah. and that may change post December 31st or whatever. We shall whether you agree with it or not. Yes, <laughs> we shall see on that. So. Lockdown has been fantastic for me getting through my reading pile. Uh, can you perhaps suggest a book that you like and would recommend? Can I give you three? Because they're all equally important. So I was handed a book when I was probably 16 years old, which, which became a major influence on how I deal with people. And that book was How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Uh, and I think everybody should read it. It, it gives you great empathy. You know, it lets you understand how to how to treat people, how to deal with people. Yeah, how to get them to do what you want them to do, but do it in an empathetic way. You don't have to beat people with a stick. My second book is a book called The Al Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. And um, essentially, that's about life being a journey, not a destination. And how you treat people on that journey will, will influence the, the quality of the journey that you have. And my, my final one is, is a short book called The Man Who Planted Trees. And um, That one's new to me. It's a short book. It's a great thing. Uh, and it, it teaches you that uh, patience is, is very important. And you can achieve great things by getting up every morning, plodding along, doing what you do, and being patient. And uh, those three books are uh, what I get my kids to read. I'm sure they're very wise at a very young age as a consequence. Yes, I wish. <laughs> what do you wish you knew now that you did? Sorry, what did you wish you knew when you started DeepBridge that you know now? That's a very, it's a very good question. I think uh, understanding more about people's needs, you know, when you, I, I, I've run some companies. My last company had, you know, 300 not employees, so you never got to know everybody. Just, just really about understanding how to get the best out of people. You know, I work with some great people here. And, you know, um, Andrew, who you know well, Andrew Aldridge. Uh, Andrew's a real good uh, sounding board because he's very calm, very empathetic with with everybody's views, and a, and a great negotiator if you need them. So, what do I wish I know when I started Deepwaters? You'll probably wish I'd known about EIS before I spent the fortune. You know, I'm, I've not got to this age by not knowing a lot of things and understanding a lot of things. I think uh, I've always said that, that you can achieve your goals by not standing on people's heads, stand on their shoulders, not their heads. And uh, sometimes that's uh, not served me well because uh, people have taken advantage of my approach to things. But I think longer term, I think my, my attitude to people and to life has stood me in pretty good stead. And uh, I enjoy working with my team. Could we have moved fa faster than we have done? Probably, but uh, that'll probably accelerate now as we go forward. So there's not a huge amount that, that uh, I could answer there, and that just a consequence of being the age I am, I think, Brian. Yeah. Well, on that positive point that you are uh, full of wisdom now, um, <laughs> we shall draw this to a close. So if anyone wants to find out more about what you do with DeepBridge, where should they go? Well, first and foremost is, is go to the DeepBridge website. It's pretty comprehensive, uh, but you know, don't hesitate to. I may be managing partner, but I'm happy to speak to anybody. 
Um, you know, and, and if I can't answer the question, there's certainly somebody here who can. Uh, we have uh, distinct individuals who run different elements of DeepBridge who are more than happy. You know, we, we are open to communicate with anybody at any level at any time. Great. That's always good to know. So thank you very much for giving us your time today, Ian. We very much appreciate you coming on. Thank you for the opportunity, Brian. Enjoyed it. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.